Welcome everyone. We have a fun, interesting topic for today. Entheogens, psychoactive drugs and plant consciousness. And um, we're going to divide this uh, talk into two parts. So I'm just going to give a brief overview. Of course, it's impossible to say everything about uh, psychoactive substances, psychoactive drugs and entheogens. But um, I'm going to give an overview first and then I'm going to say more kind of applied um, understanding in terms of plant consciousness, where I stand on this. And just to give you a heads up, if you're expecting um, to hear from someone who is very much into entheogens and psychoactive substances, so I'm not the right person. I personally don't, well, I was going to say I don't believe that we need them. I personally haven't really needed them. But I do believe plants have a consciousness, so that's going to be the second second part here. But um, let's start maybe with the whole topic of altered states first. So we have a concept of trance of an altered state of a short-lived change in how we experience reality. It's temporary. It goes away and we go back to ordinary consciousness, to consciousness we need to perform our daily tasks. And we can take many different angles on it. We can interpret it in terms of brain waves. And many people, many scientists have studied brain waves. So, for example, alpha state versus your beta state versus deep meditative uh, gamma, whatever epsilon states. Um, or we can see it in terms of productivity, a state where you get something done or a state where you are um, inspired to create or left brain, right brain. But... There is, of course, a gradation of how altered your state is. For example, if you are very much in the flow, if you are creating, if you're writing and you can't even hear when somebody, I'm sure we have all been in that state, when we are so much in, in into the process where we are either writing or painting or uh, working on a particular project or, I don't know, even cooking sometimes perhaps. And we can't hear. Somebody talks to us and we don't hear them. We don't notice what's going on. We lose track of time. Oh my goodness, six hours have passed. Um, so that altered state, that trance, if you like, is the ability to see, sense, smell, feel something that you couldn't do before. So as I said, there are those superficial, those light altered states that we have all experienced for sure um, as a state of being fully immersed in work. There is loss of sense of time. That's important, actually, in terms of time. Um, there is like a realignment with an organic time, with that natural time, the real time, whatever it may mean, recognizing that, oh, you know, actually, 
time is a relative thing because just now, you know, I lost all track of it. We reach these states through meditation, through prayer, through music. And I would even add here, I believe our bodies, our beings crave altered states. They crave trance. They have uh, they uh, like a built-in, you know, desire for reprieve from reality, if we can call it this way, or rather experiencing the reality. And there is, of course, the the question of how we get into those states and what what they give us. Um, then we have more dramatic altered states, more uh, fully altered states, where we completely are transported into a different reality. So strong hallucinations or complete loss of the sense of self. Um, completely seeing like a different world being outside reality as we know it the most common of these states is sleep that is also something everyone experienced in um, in this lifetime <laughs> well hopefully that is something everyone experiences every day and sleep is very important in all religious and spiritual traditions because it completely, well, you enter a completely different reality. The difference between spiritual and religious traditions and science is that, well, scientifically, if we start approaching altered states just from the perspective of brain waves and brain chemistry and what connects to what and what reacts with what um, science doesn't quite see the difference between fake and real mystical ecstasy what does it mean mystical ecstasy well when you feel oneness with god when you feel connection to whether you call it uh, great spirit or god or uh, the universe or divine or absolute or unmanifest but religious traditions do see a difference between real and fake altered state uh, there is a difference between just getting high on uh, LSD or whatever taking some synthesized uh, drugs and having a true mystical insight moreover in um, religious traditions there is, well, an element of caution that applies even to altered states that were reached through prayer and meditation where you received some sort of revelation or maybe you started, uh, well, if you started seeing angels, that would be viewed with great, great, great skepticism. Um, but in religious traditions, there is that inherent uh, skepsis. There is, well, we have to test what would the fruits of that be? Is the person just trying to get attention? Uh, are they maybe a little bit, you know, maybe they need to eat more. Maybe they haven't uh, uh, eaten properly for the past few weeks. 
Um, and so that brings us to another point where, you know, how do we get into those altered states? Um, there are purely, um, let's say, techniques of the mind where you get through meditation uh, or maybe if we can call it willpower uh, then there are physiological changes changes in the body what do i mean by that well fasting is one of the most common ways to get into an altered state and actually if you don't fast if you don't eat for a long time you may get hallucinations just to be clear, I don't mean I don't mean altered state is supposed to bring hallucinations or sounds or some insights. It's uh, let's define it as uh, just to repeat, you know, where you are, where you change your lived experience, where you see, sense, smell, feel something that you couldn't before, where you're not just you know, existing in a world of objects, but where you suddenly see, recognize, experience the invisible reality, the reality beyond your normal senses where the world changes. And sometimes, yes, you would see and hear things that are uh, kind of forced on you. Um, so fasting, uh, there are sexual practices that are also bringing you through physiological changes in the body you bring on an altered state uh, common in uh, some uh, religious and spiritual traditions then of course we have entheogens which is the topic of today uh, and then of course we have psychiatry where we have schizophrenia we have visions and sounds uh, are the lines blurred sometimes? Well, yes. But let's go to our plants. So entheogen, what does it mean? Well, entheo, right, in God. It's the divine inspiration. These are the plants of divine inspiration. The most common ones, the most well-known ones uh, are uh, well have been historically at least i know you'd want me to start with something else but i'll maybe go down the historic route it's the cannabis marijuana uh, known from around eight thousand years before common era in japan also used in sumeria in egypt in uh, pre-first temple and first temple israel uh, so cannabis is the oldest, the oldest uh, entheogen, the oldest mind-altering um, substance that we know. Um, of course, um, we can put in wine and beer here, but I mean mind-altering, yes, entheogens, uh, in the sense of feeling divine inspiration, usually not, right? So we're not going to look into into alcohol in this um, in this discussion. Um, opium poppy, poppy. Um, 
there has been a bit of a discussion in terms of whether Sumerian Assyrian um, records speak of poppy. Turned out that uh, those frescoes that said, oh, you know, those people were carrying poppies while well, they were carrying pomegranates. And a lot uh, in terms of Sumerian use of poppies was mistranslated. But poppy was certainly cultivated. It needed to be cultivated because in order for the opium uh, to be harvested, the poppies would need uh, to be propagated by hand, so with human help. In the wild, uh, those pods, they are too small because they need to be able to burst and f fall, fall out of the pods, right, to grow. Now, when the pods are very big, that's when you can harvest opium from it. But the problem is they, they can't burst. They can't self-propagate. So they need humans. So they required some form of cultivation. So poppies are a little bit older. And mushrooms, of course. We have drawings uh, from uh, those cave cave drawings from Algeria, um, from the caves in, in Algeria, from caves in Tanzania, from uh, Australia, um, and they would date to around 6,000 years before Common Era, so before uh, the birth of Christ. Um, and that's the component psilocybin that is uh, very... Uh, well, that many people swear by. So we have many traditions uh, that were using uh, psychoactive substances in plants. Um, one of the most interesting, perhaps lesser known to the Westerners, is uh, the religion of Bwiti. Uh, that is common in African countries of Gabon, Cameroon, and Congo. And the plant that they are using is iboga. So, iboga is actually fascinating. Um, it has been tried in the West to cure addiction especially heroin addiction, and sometimes successfully, but uh, it has a high risk of killing the patient. It can attack the heart, and basically you can go into cardiac arrest and die. So now it's banned in, in most Western countries. But then, of course, it was synthesized uh, like Westerners like to do. It was taken completely out of its na native context and just you know, synthesized the most active alkaloid in Iboga and try to work with it and cure everything because we are so clever. Now, back to Iboga in its uh, natural habitat. Um, so Gabon, Cameroon, Congo. So this is the, the Central Africa. Right? These are Catholic countries. Um, where uh, somewhat syncretized, syncretized with Catholicism, you would have um, the Bwiti meetings in churches outside the normal church working hours where the community would meet in a church and hold a Bwiti ceremony with or without Iboga. Um, Iboga is a very powerful uh hallucinogenic plant 
uh, gives strong hallucinations for up to 24 hours. It is very strong. It is by um, adherents believed to completely rewire the brain. That's why it was used uh, to cure addictions, strong addictions. And many people have indeed been freed for, of addictions. Uh, heroin, for one, which, as you know, so it's a competition with the poppy, basically, and not many plants are as strong as poppy is. Um, but Iboga did cure uh, heroin addictions in, in many people who've actually, you know, come forward and shared their experiences, but it can also kill you. The cult of Iboga, so imagine, and you know, it's a fascinating topic because you could say, well, all right, at some point, someone had to try it. Like in most cases, it's very unlikely that, uh, you know, an alien or God came to a person or uh, to a tribe and said, oh, look, there's a plant that you're going to worship. So someone had to try it for the first time. So with all of these plants and mushrooms and, uh, and all of these substances that can either give you visions or murder you, there had to be those first people who tried it, who saw the result. And, uh, and it's fascinating how it happened, right? And how, how they found the right dosage, for example, how many people had to die or, or not die, but perhaps get very sick, or what was that um, decision, you know, that made them uh, say, yes, this is our plant, we're going to work with it, we're going to worship it. Um, so the cult of Iboga came from pygmies, actually and pygmies in that um parts of africa why other tribes they were not considered entirely human uh they are of course um but other tribes didn't look at them as fully equal so what was remarkable that in the Bwiti religion and in the cult of Iboga, um, pygmies are completely equal and looked up to as, you know, those who brought um, Iboga to us. So the boundaries were completely erased uh, and there is even reverence for pygmy teachers. Um, this cult is endemic of course to to africa so it's it's localized there have been attempts there are no two um teachers or priests uh, who work with westerners um and there are probably others locally who work with them one even visited uh, western countries and runs like a sort of a retreat center but the basis of the Bwiti religion is the use of Iboga. You use Iboga for the first time as part of your initiation. So it's a two-week process of initiation whereby the shaman decides if and when you're ready to take it. And then you go uh, through small microdosing just to let 
uh, the plant get used to you. So you go and harvest it out in the wild, you talk to it, you connect with it first, you microdose a little bit, and then you have the major initiation ceremony where you get that killer dose, uh, where you basically hallucinate for, for, for 12 hours, and then it clears you out, reprograms you, and then you are initiated. Um, so that is the boga process. It's it's very very powerful, um, but it's one of those things that um, one would need to say, you know, don't, don't, don't go there. Um, but it's definitely part of that indigenous traditions, and within that framework, um, it works, and. Um, based on my um, energetic connection uh, with the plant uh, that I was when I was reading about it, it was very very powerful and it really it has a, this very very strong channel very strong spirit and it is a very powerful healing plant but it it's powerful uh, you know <laughs> that power can go in many directions um, in North America, of course, we have tobacco. So the Lakota people uh, were using um, tobacco, well, it, an, a blend of herbs uh, in community meetings, and that would give um, a kind of a lucid dreaming state. Um, the blend was called kinikinik, if I'm not mistaken. Um, in North America, even though mushrooms grow plentifully, uh, those cultures, uh, from what I know, uh, have not used um, mushrooms, did not eat mushrooms as such, uh, and definitely not used psilocybin and, uh, you know, those uh, entheogenic mushrooms. Um, in Mexico and Mesoamerica, yes, they did use mushrooms, including hallucinogenic mushrooms. Peyote is known from 4,000 years before Common Era, so before Christ. Uh, again, highly hallucinogenic, uh, psychoactive, uh, used in Aztec um, religion. Here again, we have... Yes, it's psychoactive, hallucinogenic, but it makes you vomit. It makes you really, really unwell for a long period of time. So it's one of those things where you'd wonder, oh my goodness, you know, how did they come to it? Like, who would want to vomit for a while? What are the benefits? Um, but it's definitely used um, a lot in... Uh, um, in the Americas, let's say, and of course became popular in the West. Um, a lot of research uh, was done on peyote uh, simply because it was much easier to research in North America rather than traveling somewhere, uh, rather than traveling somewhere to um, Central Africa, right, to the pygmies. Well, who wants to go to the pygmies if you can research peyote? So we have over-representation sometimes of those um, uh, Mesoamerican traditions, the Mayas, the Aztec, the, you know, the nations in Mexico, then the North American and so on. Um, 
now of course we have ayahuasca <clears throat> nowadays shamans say that it was used for around 4000 years the inca tribes did not know of ayahuasca uh, and in the blend that it is in today. Obviously, it grew. Uh, the plant itself grew. Um, the first documented use that we have is from the 19th century. The, what the plant was used before that, uh, what it was used for is to induce vomit. So, for example, if you need to purify the body, right, if somebody got poisoned, for example, or if somebody has a, whatever, like a stomach bug or something. So it was given to induce vomit, not in the preparation they make today, but it was given to induce vomit. Well, as you can imagine, psychoactive drugs or research into psychoactive drugs is not a very common not a very popular topic so there can be some skewed um, um, research based on availability what the grant was available for but generally uh, there is not enough variety not you know not good enough a picture um, we are returning maybe to one of the most powerful, one of the most enigmatic uh, plants that also has given us uh, humans so much, uh, both good and bad, and it's the opium poppy. Well, it is now believed that it was actually first grown, first cultivated in Europe. It doesn't come from Sumeria, Syria. Um, some people say um, that it was um, referred to as flower of joy. Well, it turned out it's a mistranslation from the 1920s, which was later refuted. So no, the Assyrians back then, uh, thousands of years ago, were speaking of cucumber. That was their most favorite plant. Um, and um, Opium poppy is a Euro European plant grown in the Alps first. Of course, now it's grown in Afghanistan and some other uh, places. Opium poppy is the source of all the painkillers that you know, morphine, uh, codeine. Without it, as you can imagine, uh, surgeries and recovery would have been horrible. And uh, it is also the source of opiates, right, that cause the uh, addictions. So heroin, uh, the opiate epidemic in the U.S., that's all, that's all poppy. Uh, as in the case with Iboga, uh, the plant itself is hardly to blame. Uh, it's the human approach of trying to... Um, extract a compound um, without interacting with the spirit of the plant. But before I dive into plants and what I think of plants, um, 
let it be the, the smaller part of this presentation. Let's go back to cannabis, because that's actually interesting. Um, now, cannabis was discovered in a temple, pre-first temple, or around the times of the first temple of the nation of Israel, in Tel Arad, in the desert. So that is a very long time ago. That is like going back to almost the times of Moses. And in that altar in Tel Arad, um, there were documented traces of cannabis, well-documented, well-tested, um, traces of cannabis on the main altar. So it was used as a, an herb for incense. And its name, marijuana, actually some say may have come from, from those languages, from one of the Semitic languages, possibly Hebrew. So it was used in Telerad, and it is possible that it was used in the first temple in uh, Jerusalem. So the first temple um, was built, according to the Hebrew scriptures, was built by King Solomon. That Solomon. Um, and it is possible, but not proven. It may have been, cannabis may have been used as one of the incense uh, herbs, aromatic herbs uh, that was, uh, you know, offered in the temple. And that smoke would have definitely caused also some altered states. After that, however, there is no documented or you know, archaeologically uh, proven evidence of the use of cannabis in um, in the Hebrew uh, ritual. Um, so it's it's only from from very ancient times. In Eleusinian mysteries, uh, that cult of descent of the underworld and resurrection, um, connected to the story of Demeter going to the underworld to get her daughter, Persephone. Um, basically, then Persephone gets to return to Earth uh, for half a year and then go down into the underworld for the other half of the year. And the goddess of harvest, Demeter, she's grieving. And uh, that half of the year when her daughter is away from her, we have um, autumn, winter, right? there is that dark, dark time of the year. Uh, in Eleusinian mysteries, they did use some a uh, psychoactive substance, kikion, um, but nobody really knows what it was. Some say it was poppy, uh, because Demeter was given poppy for comfort. Um, but uh, actually, nobody really knows what it was. There is there is no definitive proof. Um, if we take world religions now, I suppose religions such as monotheistic religions, they don't really encourage the use of uh, entheogens or hallucinogenic plants. Um, yes, we have the POT church and so on, but that was, um, and Bwiti, but in its strict form, uh, it's for the locals, uh, part of the culture. 
um, and tradition and it doesn't replace uh, the experience of the divine it's communing with the spirit of the plant and kind of being embedded into ancestral consciousness among other things um, in hinduism um, perhaps we have some uh, cultural use of um, i think it's um, leaves marijuana leaves um, Islam is in general uh, against uh, anything that um, alters the mind, that removes the clarity of the mind away. But here we have a lot of uh, traditions um, that, well, don't rely on plants, but the use of trance and an altered state in Islamic mysticism is very much um, very common and very much needed and appreciated because the teachers would say, well, look, humans are looking for trans states. Look at all those trans parties. Only there it happens in an unnatural way through the use of drugs, through the use of music and rhythm that alters your brain waves very quickly in just a few minutes light and, and, and sound, you lose the sense of time, that's because of lightning, so very quickly you lose the sense of time. The brain waves are altered because of rhythm and sound, and uh, you're left in a very disoriented state, but the problem is because most people there don't come for a spiritual experience, so most people can be very troubled searching and have a lot of energetic attachments. Your field is opened, your sense of time and space is disoriented, and of course, if you add drugs and alcohol on top of that, so you end up with enormous distortions to energy field, psyche, and uh, and well, all sorts of things. But but the point is, at the natural state, we long for those veils to fall. We want to see the world as it is. So a trans state is natural for us humans. We long for a trans state. And so going back to Islam, then the Sufi teachers would say, but yes, but music can bring you into trance. Only let's direct it to to purpose. Let's direct it to God. Let's direct it to divine union. Let's open our hearts. Let's go up with them, you not just mindlessly roam around in a trance, but let's direct it to God, let's dedicate it, let's have a direction, a sense of where we're going. Um, and so, of course, music, dance, uh, and whirling. Whirling is a very powerful uh, trance activator, together with music and, uh, and with intention. So, of course, that exists. And now also hashish, um, some say that it was invented by Khidr. Khidr is the green man of Islam. We're not going to go there. It's a very long story, but he's a half mystical, um, half real, half who knows uh, persona who they say, you know, appeared to Moses, appeared to prophets who was teaching uh, Sufi masters. So he is an initiator and kind of a little bit like a trickster. That, if you are interested, look up the book uh, called um, "Green Man, Earth Angel." Green Man, Earth Angel, by Tom Cheatham. Um, it's a very interesting um, study 
into those, you know, prophetic traditions and uh, and philosophies and uh, Carl Jung and the descent into underworld and so on. Okay, so the general idea, I think you get the general idea that all over the world, psychoactive drugs and theogens were used, whether we like it or not. What do we make of it? What do we do with them personally? Um, I think what many Westerners don't know, genuinely don't know, <laughs> and so try to grasp onto the reality. Well, someone said to me, oh, I took, uh, I forgot what, it wasn't ayahuasca, but it was something you're supposed to sniff, um, some tobacco-like uh, plant. Uh, I took it and I felt God. I felt God. Wow. <laughs> it's wow. And if you've been so disconnected, so in your mind, so completely separated from reality all of your life, then of course, you know, a sniff of some plant uh, makes you think that you've encountered God. It's wonderful. It's it's horrifically sad at the same time, but it is what it is. And so I can understand that. Um, but in my opinion, well, maybe let's start with the fact that, in my opinion, plants are living and sentient beings. Uh, if you listened to my previous podcasts on uh, crystals and uh, rocks, uh, you'd know I believe crystals and rocks are sentient beings too. Not in the sense like us or like cats, of course, it's very different. But there is an intelligence, there is an underlying pattern, there is an underlying structure. It's not just dead matter. There is an intelligence in the sense of formative intelligence. There is something that forms them together. Uh, whether you call it God or just a universal intelligence, it doesn't matter at at this point, uh, right? It's not, not, not relevant now. The same thing applies to plants. And um, I've said multiple times that, you know, trees form networks. Plants definitely communicate. They receive sunlight. They, re they react to each other. Their energy fields change when someone approaches, including when you approach. The energy field of a plant remains for 24 hours after the plant is harvested. So you can still connect to the energetics of the plant. And for example, as in, you know, harvesting um, iboga or the components for that ayahuasca brew, people go out, talk to the plant, ask permission to cut it. Then they cut it with gratitude, with reverence. Why do they do it? Because it's an archaic tradition that some people invented in the jungle? No, because they connect to the intelligence of the plant, to the field of the plant. Plants do have a consciousness. They have a memory, a collective memory. They interact with the whole biome of the forest. So you could maybe liken them to, to a cell in an organism, like our cells have a communication network. And one cell, it doesn't exist separately. It talks to everyone else. And so it has memory. It has the memory of everyone else. And of course, at the same time, you're bigger than the cell. You have a consciousness that is 
over the cell, maybe, but your consciousness can also be influenced by the state of a cell. If you've tried to be very conscious when you are in pain, you know, it's not possible. And only the pain exists. And the whole consciousness narrows down to a particular point. You're not going to read a lecture if you are in strong pain. So it's a give and take connection uh, between us and smaller parts of our body. Well, the plants also communicate and they, uh, some of them are slow communicators. Some have a um, short life cycle, like for example, opium poppy. Uh, its life cycle is 140 days, if I'm not mistaken. So from when it uh, sprouts and, you know, through the blooming and then it dies. So it's relatively short. So it has to give a lot in a short amount of time. Those plants are usually very, very fast. Um, it's like, yes, give, give, give. And Poppy can't stand pain, right? It just wants to comfort everything and everyone. So it's one of those, you know, loves that needs to be balanced with uh, some severity. But Poppy in itself, it's just, it's, it's, it's pure, pure love, if you like, only in its own way. Um, and maybe from that example of the poppy, I gather the idea that plants, of course, they reflect the divine, just like your pictures reflect you, but they're not all of you. And the plants, of course, they give visions, but how do you see those visions? Do they come from outside of you or do they bring out something that is already in your brain? How would you be able to see something that didn't exist? Is it possible for a plant or a sacred site or a person to react with you, to bring out some resonance with you, unless it already existed inside you? You know, people, you meet people, out of a hundred people, one person stands out. Why? Why do you think that happens? There can be many answers, but one of these answers is, well, there is some resonance. There is something already within you that this person brings up to the light, whether it's good or bad. And so do the plants. They talk, yes, they bring a new um, insight, new reality. Some of them are powerful visionaries that give lots of visions, lots of teacher teachings, lots of insights. But at the same time, it's not possible for them to communicate something that's not already there. The way they just bring out what's in you. And the second thing is, um, well, in my, on my path, in my experience in life, uh, you cannot reduce the divine to brain waves and chemicals and chemical reactions. That's not it. Um, so there is a level towards which everything points, but of course we can have teachers and plants can be our teachers. But it's not all. Right? It's not all reality. It needs to be balanced. So at one point, ayahuasca may have been your teacher, and then at another point, something else becomes your teacher. 
you have to be more careful with some plants than with others, of course. So maybe if Poppy becomes your teacher, well, be careful. It's it's really, really intent on making all pain go away. As you know, we need pain. For example, uh, leprosy is the inability to feel pain. And that makes your body deteriorate, right? Because you can burn your finger. You can chop off your finger. But, you know, you, you burn normally if you you know if you burn by accident if you touch the candle flame with your hand you draw it away but with leprosy you don't feel anything so oh yeah wonderful no pain not so wonderful because the whole body falls apart right and pieces of flesh start literally falling away because you feel no pain so yes we need pain so some of these plants they're very very loving but we need to see how how much of them we can handle but of course for the western mind i think it's a shock experiencing plant intelligence that is for example as strong as in ayahuasca or iboga or uh well or or poppy for that matter um but think that you can also connect with plants energetically just as you would connect with a spiritual master or a teacher or like I taught connecting with crystals through breath work that's another way of connecting with with plants but anyway that's what I believe in uh, so we will we will wrap up this this presentation so I, I can leave you with uh, some things to ponder and uh, some questions uh, hopefully more questions than than answers so you have something to sit with thank you very much and have a wonderful day